Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Logistics Executive Group vodcast. My name is Kim Winter, Global CEO. Thanks for joining us in recent weeks with the vodcasts that we've been producing, not only for the logistics and supply chain market, but further afield across industries, introducing a range of executives and insights to assist everybody with the journey that we're all on. This week, I'm joined by the founder, chief consulting officer and chief executive coach of N3 Executive, Matthew Lewis. Welcome, Matt. Okay, good to see you. Good on you. So Matt is a global talent acquisition and leadership development expert, executive coach, as I've mentioned, and a certified CXO career leadership and health coach. I've probably missed a whole chunk of what you do, Matt. So uh, by all means, thanks for joining us today and tell us a little bit about your background and journey. No, no worries. Uh, thanks, Kim. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I'll give you a bit of background. I've spent 25 years in the executive recruitment and then leadership development and talent arenas. Uh, latterly, that's shifted more towards executive coaching and given what's going on at the moment, much more around helping individuals and companies to navigate this new norm. Um, so it's focused, I'm focused predominantly around emerging markets, but have hired into about 45 countries worldwide uh, over the last 25 years. Thanks, Matt. And today we're going to have a conversation around the whole issue of the employment environment, very yeah. salient to a lot of organisations and a lot of people around the world. Um, certainly, again, not just the supply chain logistics space and, and your experience spreads way further afield than that. Uh, we're going to talk about mobility. We're going to talk about um, various aspects of, of dealing with the current situation, issues such as mental health, or staying healthy mentally and physically, and also about stress. Just uh, perhaps to give us a little bit of an insight to the audience on on your journey and, and what drew you into the area of expertise that you're in currently. Okay. So I guess um, for me what happened is that through my career, what I've seen is a number of trends that have developed. Um, one, particularly around leaders and the things that help high performers get to the top of the tree or director or C-suite level is very often the things that end up hurting them in the end in terms of stress. So for the higher you go, the harder it gets. Um, the other thing I saw is that a lot of individuals from a leadership point of view um, weren't necessarily great leaders. They were good managers, but great leaders um, very often forget the people around them and the impact they have on others. So more than just themselves, um, they forget how much they impact both the the people that work for them and the culture of the organization and how much people look up to them. So they're a role model. So over time, what became very apparent to me is that, you know, we were creating a beast, if you like, among senior leaders that were ne not necessarily being the best for themselves or those that they led. And they weren't leading by example. Um, and what came home to me, I guess, a number of years ago is that, you know, for executives to perform, um, mental and physical health is a very, very big part of that. We embarked on a big piece of research five years ago with Harvard Medical School to help understand what the pillars of mental and physical health were and how they tied into executive performance. Great. So, I mean, you've worked with some of the world's largest organisations and, and leadership 
groups and individuals in those organisations and, and help them on their journey. And, and you and I have had previous conversations through our executive coaching uh, our businesses, uh, both here in this uh, region and also globally. Um, what have you found to be the, the main drivers of transformation and thinking in, in recent times? I mean, I know it's very difficult to generalise, but in some of the organisations that you've dealt with, um, what have been the drivers of the, the need for leaders to change? I mean, currently, no secrets about the fact that, uh, you know, the world's in a fair significant um, stage of transition for many organisations at the moment. Um, and individuals as well, of course. So, so what are you seeing as some of the triggers and the reactions that are going on now with leaders? What are they having to think about and what are the ways they're needing to change their thoughts? So it's a really good point. I mean, it's probably going to be the most critical business uh, strength is the ability to, I'd say, almost not so much transform but pivot. I think organizations at the moment, if you think of transformation as an evolution over a period of time, um, you, you are normally following a three or five year strategy and transformation is an evolution of that strategy. Now we're in a situation where companies having to radically pivot and maybe change their business model. Obviously they're impacted by global talent mobility. They're impacted by work from home, their disruptions in the supply chain of logistics, uh, everything's affected and no one was planning for that in the strategy. So transforming the strategy is one thing, but it might now be the wrong strategy. Yeah. So ultimately, if you, were, if you were to break that down to an individualistic level, when you're asking people to pivot 90 or 180 degrees in their job or the environment, there's a number of things that are going on, which is going to make it difficult. You can have a great strategy, but we know it's all about the execution, right? Yeah. Which is about your people. So if their mindset's in the wrong place, and especially at the moment with everything that's going on globally, they'll be in a, in a fear state of fight or flight. So their ability to navigate that is going to be a lot about their mindset. And that whole fight or flight state is also very taxing on the brain. And therefore, what you get is increased anxiety, stress, burnout, hypertension, challenges that come with just the situation we're in before you start lumping work on top. So people's base state is stressed anyway, and now you're taking it to another level. So I think in a, in a way, and I know it sounds soft, but the compassion and empathy of leaders to be able to help people with the baseline of that means they're going to get more out of them in terms of delivering the change. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm aware that you've worked um, and had previously uh, in your business a partner who was very strong globally in the neurology space. Yeah. Um, and I found that very interested in some of the white papers that you guys have produced. Again, you've worked with some of, some of the big tier ones globally in this space. Perhaps you can share with us uh, a little bit about the that influence of that work on on your direction and your practice and that that element of, of drilling down on uh, the neurological issues and how those affect behaviour and, and leadership. Yeah, okay, good. Um, let, me, let me use a couple of analogies. So, um, you know, before in business, you know, we would, all we would do is measure profit and loss, right? It's, it's the numbers game. And... 
in the larger the company, the more short-term thinking that is. So it's the quarter-by-quarter quarter results, the month-by-month month results. Everyone's focused inward on that short-term gain, shareholder satisfaction. The problem with that is that it's never looking up into the long term and the wider impacts of that approach, right? So everyone's just focusing on hitting the number. No one's thinking big picture. There's two things that happen, and, and we, can, we can pull out some sports analogies around this. If you're just focusing on that game, that week, yeah, yeah, you've got to be in the zone for that period, but you're not looking at the season. And that's part of the problem. You don't train for that. You train for a season. You don't train for a game, right? So you can be brilliant at the beginning of the season and rubbish at the end. And with that pressure that's come from corporates, this short-termism in terms of performance, and it's been rewarded that way as well, executives are not thinking about the long-term impacts of what they do, um, say, to the environment or to their people. So what has evolved is that if you think of it like an iceberg where the the that what you see above the water is the results and the profit. What we're not measuring is what lies, lies below the water that's stopping the whole thing from tipping over. So in simple terms, instead of looking just at the performance of a business, you need to go down a level and look at what are the behaviors that are underpinning that, maybe the values of the organization. Are people living those values and how is that behavior showing up? And then effectively what's come out of the neurology physiology space, and again, you can link this back to sports, is that the core pillars of performance is health, mental and physical health. So you can be the brightest guy in the world, but if you have a heart attack, you're no good to anyone, right? Um, so there's a lot more emphasis now from a business point of view in understanding the physi physiology and the neurobiology of leaders and both their performance and that sustainability of that performance. Now, I know that you've... Um You've developed a number of white papers and also distributed uh, a pretty handy with sharing a lot of the research that goes on in the space as well. So for any of our audience members who are interested in, uh, in reaching out, I'm sure you'll be more than happy to, to distribute or, or share any information that uh, people may be interested in. This issue of, uh, of health and to an extent um, uh, men's health in particular, um, yeah. because uh, it's pretty widely accepted that men have a, a much uh, much greater challenge or, or uh, difficulty in dealing with uh, with men's health, in particular mental health issues, um, yeah. for, for a range of reasons. Um, this is an area of interest, and, and you and I have spoken briefly about this at another uh, webinar that we were both featured on previously. Um, but perhaps you could share with us... Um, what you are seeing currently in regards to the trend, this massive impact um, across uh, a lot of industries, not all, but a lot of industries and a lot of businesses and a lot of ind individuals, and how uh, people are dealing with, are they internalising the sort of stresses and, and changes that they're needing, needing to deal with from, uh, that are being impacted on their businesses? Um, are they reaching out for support and expertise or are they people dealing with things themselves at a, at a leadership level? Okay, so um, it would be fair to say that I think the mental health awareness has improved a lot the last 18 months, especially with the stuff that you've seen come out of um, the Royals in the UK, being open about it. So there's a little bit more awareness, but men are men, 
right? Men are simple creatures um, and men's brains are simple. Um, and the other thing that the big difference between men and women that we know is that women talk, right? Women like to talk and they talk to each other and they share their concerns and their fears. Men generally don't because there's a sign of weakness. And that comes from our conditioning around ultimately how we were designed. We were competitive animals. We were comp competing for food um, and you'd kill the competition, right? So in business, that ego um, is working against men in terms of sharing their concerns. None of us are perfect. Um, and men are particularly bad at sharing, even with other men, yeah. right? What their weaknesses may be because, you know, someone might exploit my weakness, right? So that's part of the problem. It is changing, but I think what we all need to do, what we're all responsible for is, is um, spotting some of the signs before it's too late. Uh, we all know, we've all worked with people that have had heart attacks, stroke, early burnout issues, you know, died too young, you know, and some of these guys are fit, right? So the physical fitness is one element, but they mentally could be dying inside. And that's the bit you don't see uh, until it's too late. Um, I know in the region, in the Middle East, for example, we, we do some referral work with the Priory here, which is an addiction clinic, and um, they're chock-a-block. They're absolutely packed out, um, and this is now. So I think there's, another, there's a wave of mental health challenges coming, one through incarceration. The novelty of working from home is great, but it's starting to wear off. There's people that are displaced, stuck in countries that is not home. And if this is the new norm, uh, it's going to get harder for them. You know, we're human animals, right? We need contact. You know? We need physical contact. Zoom is great, but people actually want to see each other. They want to shake hands. You know, that stuff that we took for granted. It's a big part of our physiology and also of the chemicals in our brain, like oxytocin, that get released when you have that physical contact with someone. That's part of our pick-me-up, right? So you take the pick-me-up away, and then people go and look for it somewhere else, like in the fridge or in alcohol or in sugar and food. And sugar is, you know, more addictive than some of the substances we can't talk about. Um, you know, and it's a danger. And, you know, I'm saying at the moment, I'm seeing people in two phases. If they're at home and they're in fight or flight, that stress mode, they're either going fit or fat. And those that are going fat are going to come out a lot worse than when they went in. Those that go in fit okay, I've got a chance to be high performers when they come out of it. Yeah, I suppose I'm challenged. I've, I've got the mountain bike and the cross trainer at home and uh, they're there and I know I want to use them and uh, it's fair enough, they, they are getting a bit of use. But then, um, you know, I've ended up uh, for the first time in my life baking cakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't think the only bloke sure. doing that, um, yeah. you know, just because of the, of the amount of time when we were locked down as much as we were. And, of course, yeah. a lot of communities still are very heavily locked down. Um, yeah. So what you're saying is this, this uh, lack of contact is, is creating its own stresses and strains on, yeah. uh, on, on everybody, uh, me and animals, yeah. of course, and children. It's pseudo-incarceration, pseudo right? Yeah. You don't really have a control over it, and no one really has a timescale view on it. If, you do it. if you're committed to do a month in prison, you know it's a month in prison. Right. You know, this is semi-open-ended. So if you're saying to someone work from home and in some of the technology companies we know, Twitter and Microsoft are saying, you might never come back. What's that going to do to people? Yeah. Where are they going to go? 
you know, where they're going to go for their coffee conversation, where they're going to go to interact with their colleagues that they've sat next to for 15 years. Yeah. Um, we haven't quite worked out what the implications of that are going to be, but there's going to be a heavy burden of cost um, on the individual from a health, mental health point of view. And it puts the emphasis then back on the individual to solve it themselves versus the company providing that. Yeah. So what you're saying is... Work from home was one of those throwaway benefits, right, that companies did loosely. And if you did it, you're a bit like it was a cop-out. Now it's become universally accepted. And now it's become universally demanded. So you bring people back into the office and they're going to have fear about coming back. So are they going to perform at their best? So I, you know, I think this is probably going to be the greatest, not only economic challenge of our time, but mental health challenge of our time in, in helping navigate that. No, that doesn't mean it's all negative. There's yeah. opportunities there. Um, but it's, it's going to be more down the individual to take control of it. Sure. So I suppose what we're seeing is, you know, we've heard a lot about this, of course, right across the media and, and discussions uh, that everybody's been involved in about the three phases You've got the the medical phase of COVID. You've got the economic phase, which now governments are are grappling with massively around the world. As you say, lots of opportunity as well, but we can't sugarcoat the fact that there's one hell of a lot of uh, carnage around as a result of that as well. But what you're you're talking about, and I guess of interest to me today with you, is uh, is this whole um, mental, psychological, physical health aspect yeah, the impacts of that and, and the ways of managing that and, and looking to the positives of that as well. Um, if, if we just talk for a moment then about the ways of, of recognising um, if people are struggling uh, and they're being challenged and uh, in dealing with whatever the causes are, whether it's the, the medical, whether it's the economic impact, whether it's the isolation, whether it's the total change of environment, whatever it might be. If people out there are struggling in any way uh, to cope, what are some of the signs uh, that people should be looking at, whether it's themselves, their partners, their colleagues, their workmates, uh, those, anybody around them, their family? Um, And part two to that would be, you know, what are some of the practical, sensible things that we can do to to really um, help out and trigger some response that can, yeah. can be turned into a positive. Yeah, that's good. That's a really good point. Um, listen, the good thing is that, you know, whatever the pandemic or economic elements that affect everyone, we all say this comment, you can't worry about what you can't control. Mm. Uh, you can't, I can't control the spread of coronavirus. I can't control the economic fallout. All you control is your reaction to it. Mm. Yeah. Now, Perversely, if we, we slow down what happens in the brain, right? If you think about this as a logical process, you sense something, you read something in the news, you hear something, it's negative, sets off a chain reaction in your body, which is instantaneous. It creates a, a feeling, right? Like fear. We, we give it a label, which is an emotion, right? So we give it that a label. And then effectively, our body responds to that response, the fear response. Yeah. So fear response creates cortisol in the system, which is the stress hormone. The stress hormone has a long-term impact. It's created for fight or flight. It's, it's created to make you take action, to get away from something, to get away from pain. 
right? To save yourself, run away from the dinosaur. Yeah. The problem is if you're incarcerated, you can't do that. Right? There's no there's no release. So cortisol buildup increases hypertension, blood pressure, heart attack risk, stroke risk, because stays in the system, doesn't get flushed out. So in the simplest terms, neurologically, all we can do is we can interfere with our reaction to it. Uh, you've got to interrupt the cycle of what you would normally do habitually when you're frightened. You have to inter interrupt that brain circuitry. And perversely, the way that that works is having a good physical health. Right? So you're much more in control of yourself and your ability to do that. But because it's such an ingrained reaction, and I use the example of when you drive out of your house, right? You always turn left, right? Or right, depending on which way is the easiest way to work. We just do it. We don't even think about it. We don't think about driving to work because imagine how stressful it would be if you had to find a new route or learn how to drive every day. Your brain just creates a process. You don't think about it. We all do this. You get to work and you can't even remember getting there, right? You're on autopilot, right? So the brain is amazingly good at creating complex systems and turning them into simple processes and habits. The problem is we get stuck in bad ones, right? You know? So my worst one is this, opening the fridge, yeah? looking for snacks, right? My wife's a nutritionist. There's never anything in there. You know? <laughs> so this is pointless. Look anyway. <laughs> look anyway, right? And that's the brain craving sugar. Yeah. The brain looking for a reward. So we need reward. So we're stuck at home. We're not getting rewarded. In, not just with food, we're not getting rewarded. So the brain goes looking for it. So very simply, there's three things that people can do. And there's three main boxes you can put them into. Um, is the one, having a plan, having a strategy, um, and having small wins in whatever that is, even if it's like doing a to-do list or saying I'm going to do one minute's exercise, is a lot easier to comprehend than a big goal. So if you break any goal down into really, really small baby steps and just make some progress, one sit-up, one press-up, whatever it is, your brain will reward you, you know, with the endorphins and the oxytocin, and then you'll feel like doing more, right? So whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, what, people are doing jigsaw puzzles. Why are they doing jigsaw puzzles? Because it's rewarding. Because there's a beginning, a middle, and the end, right? And then they're doing, you know, they're sold out on Amazon. Can't get them, yeah? So there's a reward structure. Everyone needs to have a plan around building a reward structure. And they could be in a situation where they've lost their job and they don't know what to do. They can't control the economy. What steps am I going to take? Today I'm going to write my CV. Tomorrow I'm going to update my LinkedIn profile. Tomorrow, the day after that, I'm going to call five people that I know. The second part is the physical health bit. So we know there are five pillars to physical and mental health, and this has been proven by Harvard. The four, there are four pillars which are Nutrition, and I mean nutrition versus diet, exercise, sleep, quality and quantity, and then well-being, which we would probably put things like meditation, breathing, yoga under that bracket. Those are the four pillars of health. And then the middle one, perversely, is called relationships. And relationships also has four branches, which is friends, family, community, and colleagues. So we've taken colleagues out, right? Um, friends are remote. Families are remote. Communities are remote. So the four pillars of relationships 
And in some cultures, you'd include God in that as well. We won't go there. Okay. Um, has been taken away. And there's no, no, there's no substitute for that. So one of the pillars are, are, is hampered. And all of these pillars interfere with each other. So they either go up in a positive spiral together universally or they go down in a negative spiral. So where you are lacking in, for example, community and the ability to see people, you have to overcompensate in the other areas, right? No one's really got an excuse not to sleep more right now in terms of quality. They can create a routine because they're not traveling, they're not commuting. Yeah? They could do more exercise, body weight exercise. I know some people are held up in a one-bed apartment, no, no outside space. Body weight exercise is one of the best things you can do. Nutrition, hydration, right? Eight glasses of water, we've all heard it. We don't do it. Yeah, so you can actually take control of all of those things to affect the output. And the final bit is, is the piece you touched on is about looking for the signs. So anyone that withdraws from communication, anyone who withdraws from society, is not taking calls. Um, I've just made a conscious effort for every single guy I know that's working away from home or from his family and he's stuck to call him once a week and just say, how are you doing, right? Because men won't offer, you've got to go and ask the question. Got it. Yeah, you know, and I think um, what's come out and a lot of uh, a lot of the commentary in the market is that uh, we're seeing in certain communities and in certain countries um, the reach out for um, services to support uh, people who are struggling in various ways. Uh, is in some countries, I know Australia, it's gone through the roof. Um, I think also in New Zealand, and those are countries. Who, as we know, I mean, this week um, we saw people dancing in the street in New Zealand as they've gone to complete no, no uh, lockdown whatsoever, no social distancing, uh, no gaps on seats on planes between uh, passengers. Um, people have reached out to me, being in New Zealand, and saying, "Oh, how do you guys do it?" You know, well, clearly the government in New Zealand has got the advantage that it's a couple of islands, and they yeah. locked down pretty early and, and banned people coming into the country. Um, bring that back to business that was also good leadership yeah you'd like to think so and uh, and again we're seeing some very strong young female leaders in a number of countries disproportionately successful during the last few months than their older male uh, followers uh, or leaders so uh, you know kudos to those those ladies leading those organizations in those countries and uh, may long they continue uh, I, I we did a study, um, not in my business, it was a study about 12 years ago, um, and this may be controversial for listeners, but about women would ultimately be the best leaders because of their empathy, um, their mothering instinct, um, especially in times of crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of guys won't want to hear that. Um, but it's a reality, you know, and, and I think it's, it's a key Learning point, you know, men can learn a lot from the way women lead. Macho ego leadership is gone. Yeah. You know, it's gone and it's not coming back. And uh, men are going to have to adapt their leadership style yeah. um, to survive, you know, and, and, and to thrive, you know, or, or either it's going to consume them or, them pe- or their people. Yeah. 
you and I were both speaking at a conference recently and, and one of the questions I got was about, you know, executive talent and the traits that, that uh, the company owners and, and company leaders are looking for on their executive teams and certainly EQ, uh, emotional intelligence, over technical skills is becoming really much stronger and more redundant as a requirement. The leader there is to look after the people. Yeah. You know, a great book years ago I read called Keeping the People That Keep You in Business. Yeah. I, and I think uh, what, what we're seeing now is an escalation because of the pressure of uh, the pressure of the situation of many organisations needing to adapt so quickly um, really looking to their leaders to to make decisions that are ensuring that they're looking after people on the way through so that the not only the the commercial fitness of the business but the mental fitness of the people driving um, the changes in the business that are required uh, are in good shape. Let's just talk for a minute about um, some of the traits that, or the recommendations that you've got for leaders that maybe joined us today uh, about some of the, the things that leaders should focus on around their teams um, to make sure that they are optimising performance but also making sure the holistic approach to the business is being recognised and understood. So some of the things that you would think leaders should be focused on at this time as we drive through to the end of 20, to the next half of 2020 to, um, to give organisations their best opportunities to perform well. Yeah. Uh, I think for leaders now, they've got an opportunity to change their approach by asking more questions and not pretending they know it all. Because no one knows the answers to this, right? This, for every industry, there's, it's going to turn on its head. So no one's got the answers. So they shouldn't pretend that they have. Mm. But what they can do is ask more questions of their teams. You know, we all know those stories about, you know, the guy somewhere down in the organization that has a brilliant idea that gets buried, that saves the organization loads of money or creates a different way of working. So they need to be asking more questions, not only about how we do this together, but how do you feel? Yeah. How are you doing? Okay. Yeah. Um, we will have a shift organizationally that companies that do not look after their people will not be able to retain people. People will not only vote with their feet, um, and we've had the luxury of global talent mobility for some time now, all of a sudden that's restricted, and people are going to go, okay, I might not work in another country, but well, I'm going to move organization. I'm going to move to the organization that cares about how I feel or, you know, I'm a working mum or dad or whatever it may be. Um, they're going to vote with their feet and we're not going to have the pull on global talent that we previously had access to because mm -hmm. of mobility. So it's going to be harder for companies to retain if they don't look after their people. And... Um, Individually, those organizations, if you think about the work from home scenario, the lack of connection is how do we create that connection? Mm -hmm. uh, everyone came into the office, it was easy. Yeah? Now they're going to be displaced. They're going to be working remotely. How do you build a community within the business? How do you build a feeling of belonging? You know, we all, we're all part of a company or a business because we're human animals. We're social animals. We like to be part of something, a bigger cause. No. How do you do that if everyone's remote? 
So I, you know, it's another it, great coaches and great leaders are the same thing. They bring out the best in the team. Yeah. They see, they spot the signs, they spot the strengths, they play on the strengths, they look at the weaknesses and they build a compensation. Well, they ask people what they think we should do. They don't just say my way or the highway anymore. You know, and I think, you know, to compliment your home country, New Zealand, you know, yes, talented players in a rugby team, but you still need to have a great coach to get it all to click. Mm-hmm. And whether it be a coach in a team sport or Roger Federer's coach, it needs to be, the leader needs to be playing that role, right? Harnessing the raw talent and getting out of their way to a degree. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, the first contact team sports to uh, go live, albeit up until this week, have been uh, in front of no audience, has been yeah. the Rugby League, National Rugby League, the NRL in Australia, who've been going yeah. now for the, this is their third week. So we're the first prof- professional sport uh, platform to be up and running again. I know the New Zealanders have got their own Super 14 or 15 um, program starting next week as well. And for the first week, this week, uh, the NRL will be playing live in front of a uh, stadia full of, full of uh, an audience as well. So I know other countries are following, but I, I suppose that ethos of team has always been very central to the Australian-New Zealand mindset. And many yeah. organisations that I know of that are clients of ours in Australia and New Zealand actually won't hire anybody unless they're a team sport player because that whole ethos and that whole engagement and understanding of the importance of team is, is so important, whereas there are other cultures where team isn't so important at all. Uh, not, there's a bit of research around that that's out and available for people to see the success or otherwise of people, whether they've been involved in team sport or otherwise. Yeah, it's critical. It's critical. Yeah. And, um, um, and, 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 and to your point, which I think we, we – uh, living and working in the Middle East, you do recognise to an element on top of the emotional intelligent element you, you talked about which leaders all have to have now is, is CQ, which is cultural intelligence, right? You're working more culturally diverse organizations than ever before. Um, and this is going to affect people in different ways. You, you're not going to know how it affects them because of their religious standing or their cultural standing or their own habits and behaviors. So asking questions is key, you know? So I think cultural intelligence for leaders as they lead more globally integrated organizations is becoming as important as emotional intelligence because you just lose people along the way. So you you and I both deal with a range of colleagues in the executive coaching space globally. Um, I was on a uh, conference call the other day where there was discussion around um, some of the techniques that leaders have used uh, in, in recent times and especially in the last few months to engender that team spirit and to because of remoteness and and yeah. and what have you, making sure that, that companies and, and leaders are connecting with their teams. Um, many organisations, of course, are running regular daily calls, and of yeah. course, that's something that we are doing in my company uh, across the various offices around the world every day. If the timing right, of course. Um, but I, I guess one of the things that we found in our business was uh, that we were engaging because we're often out of the office so much or in different countries, and, of course, we're now not flying and for when we are connecting, we're engaging 
the work team is engaging in a way it never really previously did. So as an upside, we're now seeing each other much more often in a controlled environment and we get to talk about a whole range of different things. I mean, are you seeing in many of your clients uh, that sort of technique working um, as a a positive? And and what other techniques are you seeing uh, both in the market or from from a client perspective where they've take, turned the situation into a positive to make sure that they can get new outcomes and new ways of doing things. Yeah, it's a good point because I think it's not as if we would all choose Zoom or Teams online as a way of communicating, but we haven't had a choice. So we've all had to adapt and learn new skill around what that looks like, you know. Um, so it's it's added something in some respects um, to make, make working possible. Um, I mean, I heard a couple of things the other day where I think it's, I um, can't remember exactly which US firm it was, might have been Google, uh, giving every uh, employee a $1,000 uh, investment to build their own home office and go out and buy furniture. Because say, for example, you know, you end up being remote in a, your company for six months, you're probably going to end up with posture issues you know, based on sitting in a wrong seat or sitting on your laptop in bed. Um, and uh, there's, there's going to be some impact on that where, you know, ultimately people are just doing less steps, right? You know, I'm not doing my 10,000 a day uh, anymore. I'm having to make it up on the treadmill or in the garden when on a call. So I think some people are starting to get innovative as the thing goes on because they're seeing it as not just being temporary. It will be some shifts. The biggest challenge I think now is going to be for organizations is if you're not going to be able to have a normal office environment, who do you bring back? When do you bring them back? At what percentage? Um, How do they carry on doing this? Because we've all adapted to a short-term version, thinking it's short-term. What if it's forever? What does that now mean? Um, And that's where the thinking hasn't quite caught up. Yeah, we, we're in the people business. We see people face to face. I'm like a caged animal. You know, I need to get out and see people. That's what makes me tick. That's where I get my buzz. So I think for a lot of people, if they don't, you know, sales, any function of human to human face to face is critical. Um, and however good technology is, it doesn't compensate. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to have to be a way that companies and individuals adapt. But I still think it's very early because we're still viewing this as a temporary hiccup and things will go back to normal, but they won't. I think there's this increasing discussion around whatever the new normal is. It's not going to be what everybody, anybody expects it to be because, uh, and, the, and this whole tension around um, that unknowing factor, uh, that, yeah. that length of time that, uh is a, is a new condition for nearly everybody. It's uh, we've always known about defined periods of time and space and resource, um, and uh, of course that's it's a new ball game for for all of us. So yeah. seeing the results of that and dealing with it are very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that's that's the bit. It's the uncertainty. Yeah, that is the big stressor on the brain. Yeah, the uncertainty for individuals financially, in terms of their career prospects, uh, their mobility, their ability to get home, and that's the stressor that's going to cause the, you know, the negative outputs of mental health. And, and, and I'm glad the agenda is shifting towards this mentally healthy versus mental health yeah. as a stigma negative towards 
a positive that you can work on, right? We all know, you know, again, there's another sports analogy, but we all know if your head's not in the game, right, you don't perform. Um, Your head's got to be in the game. And that's the bit we've got to to work on. Absolutely. So, look, man, I I really appreciate your uh, candor and and your advice and, and input and reflection on what you've been seeing, uh, both from your your business practice and also just your more broader observations of the environment that we're dealing with, the employment environment. Um, there's, there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, that have uh, found themselves unemployed in the situation uh, that we're facing. But perhaps you can just talk to us a little bit about what your advice is um, based on your area of expertise and your background and people who are finding themselves for the first time maybe. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it may be uh, certainly if we, we look at the logistics space and the air cargo and aviation podcasts that we, we did a, a few weeks ago, um, you know, we're, we're seeing one particular group uh, worldwide who have highly trained, uh, highly experienced, highly focused, highly paid um, and now out of work uh, yeah. for thousands of pilots globally. Yeah for example, in many regions in the world. It's no secret that the aviation sector is in significant strife. What would your your advice be, not only just for pilots, but anybody in an experience where they've they've found themselves out of work, they're struggling to deal with that? What are some of the things that you would recommend that people get their head around in this space? Yeah, Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, the good news is, they're not alone, right? You, on average, you'll get made redundant 2.5 times in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're under that average, you're doing quite well. If this is the first time, it'll be a shock. The second time, it'll be a little bit easier. Um, the first time is always the toughest for a lot of people. And there's a number of things they need to remember. One, it's the role that gets made redundant, not the person. It's a cost-based issue. And that's ultimately what's been looked at. Not John is a rubbish guy, let's get rid of him. It's purely a line on a spreadsheet and it could have anyone's name on it. Um, and it's unfortunate for those that are go, but it's a lot um, more indiscriminate than people think. So it's not personal, but it's easy to take it personally, especially, well, for men and women, because it's a dent to the ego um, and there's a financial element. So one, you know, you're not alone. Two, um, it's, it's again about taking control of the situation. So I think a lot of people will go into panic mode and think pilots is a good example. Well, no one's hiring pilots. So I've just spent X number of years working in this field and training. You know, I can't just go and work for another airline. How am I going to do that? So come back to the business argument around what do you do? Do you transform or do you pivot? Um, Perversely, a lot of really interesting SMEs get born out of crisis because opportunities are created um, out of that. And a lot of people then get the chance to either start their own business or to work on a side gig or a hobby that they want to monetize. Um, Or they may decide, you know, this is a good time to go back to education. This may be a good time to take a break if they can afford it, even if they can't afford it, for my own physical mental health, for my family. It may be a good time to relocate while nothing is going on to another geography. Maybe a good time to take stock and think about how do I set myself up for the next decade 
You know, how do I future-proof myself? So it's a good time for reflection. And it's the hardest thing to do is not panic, is to have a plan. There's some very simple, practical things. I mean, 15 years ago, you had to have a great CV, right? No one looks at CVs anymore. It's all online. It's all on LinkedIn. That's where you've got your profile. You know, it's, it's a huge billboard. It's free, largely. You've got to be able to market yourself amongst the noise. So CVs are great, but if they sit in the bottom drawer and no one sees it, it's pointless. So the outward marketing content, both on LinkedIn, is, is more important. Secondly, still, and you know this, 85% of people still get jobs through their network. Yeah. Executive recruiters and, and head hunters and agencies only really are there to pick up the gap that you can't fill. So it's still about your network. And you might have a good network, but you don't know who they know. So people will reach out to their first level network and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. Right? But what they won't do is say, who do you know that I can talk to in another field, in another geography, in another country? They won't go to the next level. And I think for a lot of people, they don't have a plan. So they didn't have a B plan. They didn't have a C plan or a D plan. And I think everyone now needs an A, B, C, and D plan. And you've got to get comfortable. I use this phrase, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because you might have to pivot between those plans. So say, for example, maybe your plan A is a permanent job. And that's just not going to be available right now. But that's what you need from a financial security point of view. So focusing all your efforts on plan A through no fault of your own because of the market might be not the best use of time. However, you know, maybe looking at the interim version of that job as a company goes through transformation is a better way of attacking it. This isn't going to last forever. It's just to get you over the hump. Or maybe you can consult in that same space because you've got enough knowledge and expertise. Maybe if you're a pilot, you become a trainer. Yeah? Or you move to the non-commercial side. Yeah? Or you move to the private jet side. You know, whatever it is, they pivot. You know, or your skill set, you retrain, and you come out a better person for it. So I think the problem is, is people get fixated on what they want. I call it the spice skills question. I ask people, what do you want? What do you really, really want? because <laughs> okay? they tell you what you think want to hear. I want a permanent job I want security yeah. but that's actually the normal stock answer they haven't really thought beyond that into what they really want and they might then say what I really want is yeah I want some security and a certain standard of living but I also want to be with a family my kids are at a critical age I want them to have good schooling I'm going to move them back to Australia you know, and that was a really good time to do that we're going to be in Perth. There's no cases. You know, okay, it's two weeks of quarantine and then we're going to be safe for three years. You know, maybe, to, maybe they've got elderly parents. Maybe now is a good time to just put a year or two of the career on pause and come back to it instead of banging your head against the wall. You know? And even though this is big, in five, ten years, it'll feel like a blip when we look back. It will be a blip. It will affect a lot of people. But the easiest thing to do is to do nothing and think it's happening to you. That's what people do. I'm a victim. It's happening to me. It's not happening to lots of people. But what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do differently? Um, and all, we all know, you know, looking for a 
for a full-time job is a full-time job. People think it's just going to come to them on a, on a plate. It doesn't. You've got to go and dig around or reinvent yourself, you know, or, or, or monetize your skills and experience in a different way. Um, but people get stuck with a singular mindset of, you know, and, and I think the la- last statistic I read is, whereas our the previous generation would have had one career, one job, maybe people in their 30s, 40s now are going to have two or three careers. They're saying now our kids are probably going to have five or six careers over their life, 10 years each. So being able to adapt and constantly redevelop your skills is, is going to be critical. Now, I think some of the most successful companies that we're working with, um, either through our, our corporate advisory business or our recruitment business, um, are, are actually identifying that really key talent and in these times when a lot of taskings or a lot of role uh, activities have stopped or have slowed right down, um, the smart companies that we're seeing are recalibrating, retraining, uh, re-energising uh, a lot of young people in particular, uh, millennials who, who demand change and rotation and new things all the time anyway, um, without just you know referring to millennials. Um, but saying taking those people and changing roles with inside the business, and of course this isn't new. You and I have been dealing with the with the uh, executive market and the employment environment for many many years. Um, the smart companies are identifying that, seeing where the real talent is, making sure they're able to nurture that talent, to provide it with the um, the resources to be able to change and pivot, as you say, um, very well, you know, known words in, in, in the sector uh, of employment and making sure that there are new activities and new meaning and new productivity that can be developed around around companies. Um, it's a, again, back back to your sports analogies, uh, I mean, I've met a couple of guys that have written books about the All Blacks, for example, and, and one of them um, features about the fact that the All, the All Blacks are always looking at the top 10%, they don't want to lose and get off contract and lose to Japan or to go to uh, France and earn three times as much money. They want to keep those people, those players, as much as they can. And then there's the 10% at the bottom that may not be performing as well that are possibly in the in the out lounge unless they perform particularly well every week. Um, but it's yeah. the ones in the middle that make up the body of the organisation, in that case the, the All Blacks, but in any organisation that still need to be nurtured and nourished to make sure that yeah. the organisation is healthy. Uh, and sadly, because as you get older, your resistance to change gets greater. Mm. Right? So the people most at risk are those at the top of this pyramid. Yeah. So the older executive, the 45 to 55-year-old executive at the end of their career, which who is probably thinking about getting out in the next five or ten years, may financially now need to work another five years on top of that to recoup financially. But the world's going to change under them and they're going to need to reposition themselves. So a lot of the coaching conversations I have are people in that bracket, 50 plus, that haven't needed to change before. They've ridden out a couple of recessions. They've been okay. They're on the final stretch and it's all changed. And they're not sure what to do. Um, And very often what they've built you know, maybe a big pension pot around a particular company um, or a particular retirement plan, and it's gone out the window, and they're and they're stuck. 
um, and it's harder for them. But it, it, it's, again, changing that mindset. So whether it be a leader within a business or whether it be a coach helping an executive, it's changing the mindset about what's possible. You know, and I, I remember a quick story. I remember interviewing a senior guy in the UK 25 years ago who, um, sorry, about 20 years ago, that uh, was, let's just say, he was one of the senior guys in one of the big supermarket chains. And he was um, one of two being considered for CEO promotion. And uh, we had the conversation about what would happen if you don't get it. And this guy had worked as a shelf stacker and he'd gone all the way through. And um, he stopped when I asked him, what would you do if, uh, if you didn't get the job? And he sort of looked out the window and said, you know, I've always wanted to run a fish farm in Scotland. Right? And uh, he didn't get the job. He, he was overlooked. And the other guy got it. And immediately that happened, this guy quit. And he went dark, disappeared, and went and opened a fish farm in Scotland, was really successful. And then he, he got into wine uh, and, and now lives on a vineyard in Marlborough um, and opened a vineyard. And that's his two passions. And I think what this situation does is allow people the freedom to rediscover what their passion and purpose may be because we park it and get on with the job. You know, and very often there's, there's opportunity in that passion and purpose. Um, and if you can't really go and do that stuff at 55, when can you, right? So he's still making money, he's still doing well, but you know, people park that, they put it on hold for the company and they just become part of the machine, you know, and they forget about why they exist. What's their legacy going to be, especially with men. Men start to think about their mortality and what's their legacy going to be. What am I going to leave behind? But they don't do anything about it. They're just on the treadmill until they fall off. Okay, Matt. Well, look, you know, really do appreciate all your insights and, and sharing the information that you've had today. To, to provide to our audience. I uh, really do appreciate your time. To our audience, uh, thank you for joining us again. Um, by all means, uh, there'll be the comment section below uh, on, on LinkedIn and, and other platforms that you'll be seeing this and, and hearing this presentation, this conversation. By all means, any feedback, comments, questions, um, if you want to reach out for more input or advice from Matt, um, by all means, Send us uh, some comments, Matt. I'm sure you'll be more than happy to uh, contribute and to, to feedback and to contact people to speak to them. There's a lot of people out there that are reaching out and looking for assistance in various areas. Um, certainly, Matt and ourselves are happy to do so. Um, so don't hesitate. To everybody who's listening today, we thank you. Appreciate your time. Again, we always like to thank the first responders, the frontline workers that are, that are tirelessly working away during this, this period. Uh, thank you. Uh, respect to everybody. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Yes.